Today, I'm happy to welcome Angela Dufer to the podcast. Angela works as a sports um, at the Canadian Sports Center Atlantic as a dietitian and has been the lead performance dietitian for the Canadian Olympic Committee. She teaches at Mount St. Vincent University, and I'm really pleased to have her on the podcast today. Angela, can you tell me a bit about the athletes you work with and a bit about the work that you do? Well, thanks for thanks for having me. This is a new way of, uh, of of teaching in this new world, so I'm really excited to to be part of uh, a new a new wave of learning. Um, I, I love getting students' reactions and faces, but uh, yeah. So I have a, a bit of a few few different hats that I wear, um, but the main one um, is obviously um, a, the lead performance dietitian, as you mentioned, with. The Sports Center Atlantic and the uh, Canadian Olympic Committee. So obviously, provincial level athletes, um, high performance athletes, national level athletes at the Olympic level. Um, but I also have a private practice um, where I, I work uh, a couple of days a week part time, um, where I also see recreational athletes. So it's kind of nice because I get to see kind of that progression from, um, you know, recreational, even maybe mature recreational athletes um, or young to their sort of high performance um professional career so um so that's kind of the 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 scope of i guess um athletes i i work with in those sort of different um different venues wow so really all athletes uh, right across the uh, across the range now in sometimes we hear um people say dietitians sometimes you hear nutritionists can mm-hmm. anyone refer to themselves as a registered dietitian well, that's a really good question. So in some provinces, um, professional dietitian, registered dietitian, uh, they're one and the same thing, um, are um, all protected, I should say, in all the provinces across Canada. Um, or, re- um, yeah, sorry, registered a professional dietitian. But when you use the term uh, nutritionist, that's where it gets a little bit sketchy. Um, some provinces, we're lucky in Nova Scotia, uh, we do protect that title. So if someone isn't um, a dietitian slash um, nutritionist with the same training um, as a dietitian and they're using that title nutritionist in Nova Scotia, um, they can actually be um, fined for for using that title. But as you get across Canada, it gets a little bit, uh, and I, I'm not uh, up to date on all the provinces, but I um, I do know that Ontario doesn't protect that title. Um, I think BC protects the title. So it is kind of um, a little bit cross, um, cross the board, just a bit of a mismatch. Um, but you're absolutely right. Um, dietitian definitely um, has the similar amount of training, undergraduate degree, and then your postgraduate um, or integrated um, uh, practical internship. So then you're guaranteed to be getting, you know, that evidence-based um, credible uh, nutrition and food service or food science information. So sort of like pharmacy, pharmacy is um, you have to be licensed and undergo yeah. licensing exams and, and a certain level of education. So that's good to know because there's a lot on the internet on nutrition and, and uh, you know, we often get people in pharmacies asking about things that they read on the, on the internet. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, and that's even the same for sports dietitians. So even, 
to call yourself a sports dietitian. We're getting a little bit more um, uh, tight on the on that term as well. So because dietitians can go in so many different fields, and I know the students have probably heard from other um, maybe clinical dietitians. Um, so we're actually starting to become a little bit more protected even in that title um, and with qualifying um, um, exams and uh, levels of experience to be able to um, call yourself a, a board certified or um, specialist in sport dietetics, a CSSD. So that's kind of nice to see that um, come to light over the last 20 years. Oh, that is. Yeah. Um, and, and you deal with athletes um, specifically. Um, so why is proper nutrition so important for athletes? Well, as you said, they can get a multitude of information um, at their fingertips now. Um, they get it from coaches, they get it from um, colleagues, they get it from mentors, athlete mentors. Um, so it really is important that they get the, the evidence based because it's a science. The information is always changing, much like pharmacy. So. Um, you know, something that, you know, was posted on, on a website two years ago may not be um, accurate or up to date and sports. So it really is about, um, you know, working with athletes to periodize their, their nutrition. It isn't a one size fits all. Um, it really is um, individualized, periodized to their specific types of training in their competition and training year. Um, so that's what really makes it kind of exciting, um, but, but very important to be following athletes along their training and competition journey. So can, um, does nutrition correlate to things like injury or illness or, or is it just performance? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Right. Um, we know that quality timing um, of food and nutrients is really what the key is when it comes to um, preventing and maybe even recovering from injury. I mean, we're just getting in back into training after, you know, six months of um, isolation for some of our athletes. So we actually treat it almost like an injury um, where they would have scaled back um, quite a bit on some of their training um, and, you know, really looking at the importance of certain types of nutrients, which I know we're going to get into um, in and around either recovering from training um, or recovering from injury and even getting back into what we call return to train um, in, in, in such situations like, you know, COVID right now. So um, yes, very specific um, recommendations that we have for certain um, nutrients specifically around um, either preventing um, injuries um, and also promoting recovery. Right. Now I'm going to share your slides with the students and um, they'll have that as a yeah. resource as well. And, and, and at one point you talk about the risk of energy deficit in sport or REDS. Can you just talk a little bit about that and what that is and, and why it's important? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a, a few years ago, um, a few researchers and one being in um, in Canada, actually, um, had sort of determined that this female athlete triad, which sort of was the old notion of um, inadequate en energy and this intercorrelation between um, bone uh, bone deficiency or um, decreased bone mineral density and amenorrhea. The only downside of that is um, we were seeing males kind of experience um, similar other than the, 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 the amenorrhea or, or um, lack of um, 
or irregular menstruation, um, we're experiencing other sort of symptoms related to um, energy deficiency. And what that means is um, it really not getting that optimal energy available for not just training, but all these other physiological processes that um, that we that we need energy for, not just as an athlete, but just to um, to, to to be healthy. So, what was happening was as energy was being diverted to to the working um, muscles, your glycogen stores, and it was pooling from all these other areas that um, that we were seeing sort of. Um, negative effects of of health, um, everything from um, you know GI disturbances, sleep, um, um, depression, even um, decreased muscle strength from from a more like training um, perspective, um, impaired immune function. Um, so this REDS relative energy deficiency in sport is what the acronym stands for incorporates. The female athlete try, but it takes it beyond that and includes males and these other consequences, health and training consequences of not having enough energy available. And some of the research is actually showing that even just not having, you know, a minimum of 300 calories, which isn't a lot, that's kind of like, you know, a really good balanced snack. If an athlete is consistently not consuming, um, you know, at least a deficit of 300 calories or that having that 300 calorie deficit over and over and over, they can actually start to slip into some of those um, health um, effects um, and deficits from, from energy deficiency. And I, you know what, I think it's really important that pharmacists learn about this because people present at pharmacies with these complaints and these negative effects. And, you know, if you're not thinking the whole person and what could be going on, it's really good for pharmacists to know the relationship between, you know, nutrition and, and some of the symptoms that show up with the REDS. So thanks for explaining it to us. Um, your slides yeah. also go over macronutrient requirements for athletes, and you give lots of good examples. Mm -hmm. Can you go over the four big nutrient requirements that, um, that we need? Um, and I'm thinking carbohydrates, protein, fluid, and fat. And, and, you know, mm -hmm. we, we need them in everyone needs them, but also it's a little different for athletes sometimes. So can you kind of go into yep. some of that detail? Absolutely. So, you know, for the general public, and I'm sure um, some of the students might have had sort of basic nutrition in terms of their average macronutrient distribution range. So those AMDRs for carbohydrates, proteins, and fat specifically, um, it's a percentage of your overall um, energy requirements or your calorie requirements. With athletes, we know a little bit more specific that they use some of these nutrients based on body weight. So we get a little bit more specific. Other than protein, we have a macronutrient and you know um, gram per kilogram of body weight recommendation for non-athletes as well as um, as well as athletes. But for carbohydrates and fats, we don't really have that um, for the general sort of non-training population. So it gets kind of interesting and again you get very you can get very specific when it comes to periodizing these macronutrients along their training um, demand so that they're matching not over not just overall energy requirements but they're matching um, these macronutrient requirements more specifically so yeah carbohydrates that's the main um, you know main source of fuel no matter what sport that's been sort of d disputed and um, and and 
uh, confirmed over and over again in the research that it doesn't matter what type of sport it matters, maybe how much of those um, carbohydrates that you would get in for that energy um, or for that exercise bout, but it definitely is the main source of fuel for, um, for most, um, for all sports. So making sure we're matching those energy needs, and that could range anywhere between, um, I think the, the latest position paper from Dietitians of Canada and um, the ACSM and the American Academy um, have sort of opened the window a little bit more. It used to be six to 10 grams per kilo. Now we're saying, yeah, you know what? We know some sports might not need as much um, carbohydrate, uh, maybe some um, sort of combat sports, um, weight category sports. So it's actually like three to 10, which is a big range. Grams per kilogram of body weight per day is sort of what we're um, working in that, um, in that window of recommendations. With protein, Again, um, we know that general population has a 0.8 gram per kilo of body weight. And I know most maybe students are now taking out their calculators and crunching numbers because that's really what they want to know is how much do I actually need? And then the number pops up, you know, wow, I'm a, you know, maybe I'm training for, we actually have a marathon coming up um, in, in October in the Valley, you know, maybe I'm training for a half marathon. So maybe you're, carbohydrate requirements are, you know, seven, eight, maybe you're carbo loading for a marathon, maybe it's 12 grams per kilo of body weight, that becomes quite, um, quite, quite a large number of uh, carbohydrates per day, per day, um, obviously, you wouldn't carb load every day in training, but you know, two days before, um, becomes a little bit overwhelming for some athletes. So being able to work with, you know, athletes and, and, and come up with, practical um, food strategies that you know they can obviously um, most of them are on a budget having um, quick easy access to um, affordable foods is is really important but it can be overwhelming you know because those those numbers can be can be quite high sometimes so um, I mentioned protein so protein obviously that's our um, I, I call it the the mechanic of our of our of our um, complex system um, definitely we need protein um, really dependent and for all nutrients it's not just about getting those total amounts but it's about getting the right timing and the right quality of those nutrients. So I know I get into a little bit more in the slides in terms of types of carbs and types of protein. Um, and, and yes, it, it, it does make a difference when you have those um, various types for sure. But just talking about amounts, um, again, we have a range for protein anywhere between um, if they're sort of a, a recreational athlete, you know, a gym goer going, you know, to the, you know, a, a few days aerobics class here, they might need one gram per kilo of body weight, whereas opposed to, you know, a, a non-training, um, um, more sedentary person would need 0.8 grams. So not a huge difference, but then you get into maybe, um, more um, endurance training um, athletes, so more aerobic style sports. Um, then you're looking at anywhere between 1.2 to 1. maybe 4 grams per kilo. And then adolescent athletes, you know, upwards of 2 grams per kilo. And then we've got strength training or, again, sort of combat sport um, type of athletes where they might be in that 1.6, 1.7 grams per kilo range. And the interesting thing about protein too is that, you know, there is a range. So, you know, is more better? Um, we actually don't utilize. That's been sort of proven in, in bolus amounts. So, you know, how much protein do we actually need at one time that we actually um, can, can utilize in terms of, um, you know, 
maximizing that muscle repair or muscle protein synthesis. And there is a, there is an upper limit. So we literally excrete what we don't need. So making sure we, again, still stay within those ranges because as athletes, protein tends to be the, the macronutrient that they know they need a lot of. Um, it's a little bit easier to get in terms of numbers, the total amount that you need a day. But what happens is they may be offsetting their carbohydrate needs with the amount of protein in there because they're getting, you know, excess protein that they're not using. Um, and then it's coming at the expense of their, their carbohydrate needs. Right. Mm, yeah. So the other two nutrients that we didn't mention, obviously are, are fluids. I call that my forgotten nutrient. Um, I, 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 I do a lot of sweat tests. I did uh, right before COVID hit, I was with some rowers in, in Florida doing literally, um, amount and quality of sweat they were losing um and so fluid tends to be the nutrient that's kind of forgotten about like we do a really good job of maybe getting the the, the carbs the proteins we haven't talked about fat but getting those met and then come training day um we start dehydrated and then not being able to um to to pick up from that because we train sometimes every day and sometimes twice a day so um to to regain that you know equal um dehydration status can take sometimes up to two days so they're constantly training in a dehydrated state which doesn't take much like you don't have to be you know, um, excessively dehydrated, but you definitely need to keep on top of the hydration. And again, that's another very individual um, uh, recommendation because we all sweat very differently um, in terms of amounts and um, in terms of environment. So, Angela, um, you know, you hear about hydration affecting performance and even, you know, I think as a general population, we we sometimes uh, don't pay attention to our fluid intake and we need to pay a little more attention to that. What about fat? What is the, what is the thinking with the fat intake? Yeah, well, the keto people aren't going to like me very much. Um, and there's, there's a, there's a ton of research and uh, two real uh, gurus in, in sport nutrition, Louise Burke and her husband, John Hawley. It's kind of funny because they're both um, very, uh, very uh, heavy into nutrition research. And Louise supports, um, obviously, you know, moderate high carbohydrate, um, lower fat sort of training modules. Um, and her husband has come out with quite a bit of research around um training low compete high which means sort of training low carbohydrate high fat or lc high hf which is low carb high fat um diets in training only and how they can start to utilize different energy systems and energy substrates which can affect their overall in positive way um their end performance but a consistent long-term low fat um, or sorry high fat um low carb diet for athletes um has not been proven successful in competition um settings so i just kind of wanted to preface that preface that because there is quite a bit of research around that and actually i'm i'm actually trying a a high fat low carb diet right now with one of our um athletes who is really struggling to lose weight um over covid and obviously we have the time right now to kind of play with some different um macronutrient distribution ranges with her and she's actually found it quite quite successful so um obviously not keeping her in that you know as her um journey to tokyo um is is coming hopefully, hopefully yes. um, but it was interesting 
right? <laughs> but it's interesting to see how that can play in terms of different individual um, substrate utilization. So, so with fats, yeah, I mean, anywhere between uh, one, one to two grams per kilo of body weight, obviously the sources make a difference. Um, you have animal sources, you have vegetarian sources. We obviously want to promote the um, higher um, um, poly and monounsaturated fats coming from more of our um, our vegetarian sources, um, lower fat dairy products, etc. Um, so we kind of fill in their energy needs um, after sort of the carbohydrates and protein sort of needs or recommendations are met, then we sort of fill the rest in with with fat requirements. And honestly, I see a lot of athletes who struggle with um, meeting their fat requirements just because they think, you know, more fat's going to um, make me gain weight when in fact we need fat for some of our fat soluble vitamins. So um, I'm preaching to the choir. Yeah. You guys know that. And it's really important for um, absorption of those. Well, it sure sounds like a puzzle and I, I can see, I mean, it's a, it's creating a clearer picture, the need for consultation, especially high performance athletes to get it all right. Now, you know, there's, there is the high performance, but there's also, you know, um, you mentioned it's not just what you eat, it's the timing and the quality of what you eat. And um, you talked a little bit about carbo loading um, before activity. What about recovery drinks? Now, this is something, you know, somebody might yeah. get a lot of questions about in a pharmacy. And, you know, we all see people, you know, at the end of the blue nose, they're handing out chocolate milk as a recovery <laughs> drink. So what what's your thoughts on yeah. on recovery drinks? Yeah, well, obviously, um, you know, chocolate milk tastes great. So that's usually one of the, one of the bonus points for, for chocolate milk. But what we look at for recovery, it's not just protein. So if, you know, if someone comes to you asking for um, a, a protein supplement for recovery, um, they're actually only getting one part of that picture. We actually need carbohydrate in order to utilize that protein for muscle repair, which that picture doesn't get painted very often in the in the media. So what chocolate milk has is, can you do it with regular milk? Absolutely. Chocolate milk has a little bit more carbohydrate. So we look at a three to one ratio. And what that means is three carbohydrates to one protein. If we know we need, and this has been again, argued over in the research, it keeps inching up and up and up, but depending on the exercise and the intensity and, um, and duration of that exercise bout will depend on how much protein and carbohydrate you would need in that recovery. And it can be anywhere between, again, 20 grams of protein, 25 to maybe even 35. And research is sort of pushing 40 right now um, in sort of a heavy, intense um, um, like exercise or um, strength training um, bout. So four times that or three times that for carbohydrates. So you're looking at, again, a significant amount, like 120 grams of you know carbohydrate and 40 grams of protein. So if you look at chocolate milk, you know, you're getting a cup, you're getting maybe a third of that. Right. <laughs> so we have to put it into perspective of amounts. Um, and then again, can you get it with other things? Absolutely. Um, you just need to make those combinations. So white milk and a banana, two cups of white milk and a banana um, may do it. We've got different milks on the market now, ultra filtered milk, which has a higher protein content. Absolutely. You can do it with a smoothie. Um, if you need to uh, sort of add in protein powders more for convenience, um, when athletes go to different countries and train and they find it difficult to get that protein recovery, then that's where we would see um, protein powders. But 
I just caution because I know pharmacists will get a lot of questions from maybe the younger population, like under 18. Um, and we actually have a sport uh, supplement policy coming out very soon. I'm hoping it's going to be launched in October. I sit on that committee nationally um, where we have sort of a, a nice sort of decision tree. So um, I, I would recommend you kind of look for that in the next couple months if you're looking at sort of how you would... Um, how you would recommend or if you would recommend a certain supplement because the again the research con constantly changes on the different types of supplements but especially with protein powders and any supplement in general um, when it comes to a sports supplement um, anyone under the 18 we're really not recommending because we don't have the science um, to back up really um, you know any long-term sort of effects with now whey powders are probably pretty safe um, but I always use food first as my rule, you're going to get other nutrients um, out of sports, uh, or sorry, out of, out of food than you would out of just that one nutrient coming from a sports supplement. Yeah, that's a really good point because pharmacies do sell the different types of protein powders. And we do see, especially teenagers that are trying to bulk up and, and be at the gym. And sometimes it's mom mm -hmm. that comes in or dad that comes in and, and buys the supplements. Um, you sometimes see protein powders, creatine, amino acid powder, uh, pow powder. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, great tip to look for the sports supplement policy, but, um, you know, it, it, what are the risks with using these powders and are they all safe, so to speak? Yeah. So, right. So there's, yeah, there's sports foods, there's nutrition supplements, and then there's ergogenic or sports supplements. So there's three different categories that we break out into. And really once an athlete puts any one of those in their mouth, whether it's an RX bar, a protein bar, um, a smoothie from Pete's Boutique that has whey powder in it. We have no idea where that whey powder comes from. I have no guarantee. So the biggest risk in any of those supplement um, categories is the risk of um, of a doping violation, which unfortunate we were unfortunate to have a, an incident really close to home not too long ago with one of our athletes who had tested positive um, for. Uh, for a banned substance, most of these companies are making other things in their facility. Now, normally like Weber's brand and, you know, natural factors, you know, those sort of, again, nutrition supplements are what, are what we call low risk because they're not producing other um, ergogenic aids usually in their, in their facility. However, there are third-party testing companies that we look for um, on, on logos or on labels that would actually specify that that product, again, whatever it is, sport food, nutrition supplement, or ergogenic aid, that's gone through, um, it's, a, it's an ISO standard um, level of testing that tests for 272 screened banned substances that constantly change every year with WADA. So they're always up to date on, um, on what they're screening for and what they're testing and then we would actually um, get that certification so that we would have that documentation to prove that a if this athlete tested positive we've got this backup of um, of certification saying hey we know anything that that we recommended for this athlete to take did not come from uh, from that that source so I always say look for the logos and I'm not sure if I have them in my I think you have them in your slide deck that will uh refer the students to and I yeah Absolutely. I think they can look at that and I, I think a good point 
okay, well, your high performance athletes, if they get tested and, you know, kicked out of a competition because of contamination or banned substance, but just in general, it just must not be good to be taking things that may have, you know, caffeine or ephedrine in them. And, you know, it's, uh, it's really good to look at where your products are coming from, for sure. Yeah. I mean, anything that always has this proprietary blend or, you know, undisclosed blend of something, I'm always questioning that. But, you know, just in general, and I like what you said, you know, you know, amino acids, you know, they're pretty harmless because, you know, we eat them, right? Right. (laughs) But if you're, if you're taking like an overconsumption of one nutrient, whatever it is, let's just use amino acid as an example, you may actually be, and it's very possible that you're probably impeding the absorption of other nutrients that you don't even, that we don't even know because the research hasn't been done on it. Um, that may be really beneficial to that individual or that athlete's training or, or performance. So, you know, more isn't better. Um, I always say, you know, if you're looking at getting, you know, caffeine or creatine, both of those things, even amino acids, which all have been proven effective um, aids in sport, if you get it through food, you're going to get all these other nutrients too that are coming from that food that are probably going to benefit sports. So, you know, using branch chain amino acids, for example, well, they're all found in dairy products. So if you're, if you're consuming dairy, if the athlete's consuming dairy, they're also getting vitamin D, which we know is really important, not just for, um, bone health, but we've got newer research to say that it actually can help support um, muscle mass too. So, you know, I always look at the whole picture <laughs> and, and really look at um, and, and, and encourage athletes to really look at the labels, um, look at what they're getting um, and see if we can get that through food conveniently, obviously. And because, you know, some of these things are quite expensive too. So athletes sometimes are sometimes wasting their money. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's a consistent message throughout this whole block on nutrition that the students are hearing is that food first, let's see if we can get it through food because there's so many other yeah. benefits to food, whether it be fiber or, um, you know, multiple vitamin sources. Let's see if we can, and we can get it through food. Uh, speaking of food, that's- you mentioned sports food. And of course that, is an industry within itself. And again, it yeah. is sold in pharmacies. So um, energy bars, sports drinks, meal supplements, yeah. those sorts of things. What's, what's your take on those? I mean, I, I think the message is food first, but do they play any role in, in a training athlete, whether it be a recreational or weekend warrior, um, you know, that comes in yeah. looking for a little bit of a, you know, a supplement and thinks it will help. Yeah. Them. I mean, sports foods, again, pretty low risk on our supplement kind of tree um, in terms of like, you know, an anti-doping, but um, really they're there for convenience, right? So I've got a lot of athletes that, Angela, I don't want to make your homemade energy bars. I know they only take five minutes, but I don't have five minutes that I want to devote. I hate cooking. I hate preparing. I'd rather spend, you know, $3 on my my, my Cliff Bar um, or, or my Boost, right? Which all are things that I recommend. A- if it means they're go- they're not going to get those nutrients because or and the timing um, in in terms of those nutrients in in their training, then yes, then they would play a place for those um, um, those athletes absolutely. Again, I always have to 
ask and question. And we've got some of our Olympic athletes that are actually, you know, I, I work with um, a few of our national teams and it's actually the sport doc sort of um, hard, fast rule that if, if you don't know where that whey protein and that protein bar came from, and we can't specify. So the dietitian can't go back to Cliff and say, you know, I want certification that that whey protein is safe. Then we're actually saying, they shouldn't be consuming it. And yeah, they might have to make their own, which becomes a little, little more strict because, you know, we don't have a lot of tested uh, sports foods out there. It's starting to come more and more as they see that, you know, more athletes are becoming more aware of that. Um, but yeah, they absolutely are, are an essential, I would say, part of, of, of an athlete's diet just due to their their training volumes, their travel when they travel um, to different, um, you know, around the world and their nutrition may take a little nosedive because of food quality. Um, then they pack those. We ship a gazillion pallets of sports foods <laughs> <laughs> to the Olympics. I, I, I can imagine. I, I My daughter did a competition in China and she said that was the most difficult part was the food. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, you have to you have to also rely on what's what's normal and what what you're you're used to. So I can I can totally hear that. Sometimes we get yeah. concerns, or sometimes people come up to the counter and say, "I'm just feeling so tired and sluggish," um, and inquiring about iron being low. And um, mm. I'm wondering, you know, do athletes require the same amount of iron? that the general population does. And of course there's, there's proper testing to see if you're anemic and having your hemoglobin tested and, and, and looked at, but people do look for iron supplementation and, and what's the, what's the thought with the athletic um, cohort or population? Yeah. So, I mean, iron's one of them, vitamin D, you know, we could get into all of them, but iron tends to be sort of the one um, nutrient that we see at a deficit um, quite often, again, maybe from poor nutrition status, like intake. So we try to work with obviously food first, but this is one that we usually have to resort to, um, to supplementation, um, again, just because of varying um, diets and, 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 um, and restrictions, maybe so like vegans, vegetarians, mm. etc. Um, we don't have a different recommendation per se, like amount, like your RDIs um, for uh, for athletes. I would love to see that in my professional career. I've been waiting for it for 20 years. I think we're getting close to saying, hey, athletes we know need, you know, X milligrams as opposed to, you know, 11 for the general population or female population, adult population. What we do know is that we see deficits in in, in performance and training when we when we have um, ferritin levels, so our actual storage form of iron being lower than sort of what that mid range of a normal uh, ferritin would be for for general population. So what that really requires is constant blood work and I, athletes hate it, but it really guides our recommendations in terms of how much supplementation um, we would and 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 timing of that supplementation. Um, for athletes. So vitamin D and iron are, are two that actually we, we're seeing higher um, levels um, required for, um, for an athlete. I know ferritin levels across the board can range quite, you know, a, a large number if you've ever looked at blood work. Um, so doc, normal doc would say, yeah, their ferritin's fine. And I say, no, I want to see their actual results. When in fact, they're quite low, we require a, a minimum of about 50 
um, mic, um, micrograms per, per liter for that. So not to get into too much specifics, but that's a big difference between, you know, a, a, a 12, right, right. <laughs> which would be considered normal. Um, interesting thing about iron. And I, I, I recommend if anyone's interested in that to really delve into the research, because I just got flipped, uh, three or four new papers in terms of timing of, um, of, uh, right point, of iron absorption. you can yeah, take the iron of absorption the iron you want but if you're taking it with milk and calcium you're you're not you're not getting exactly. it in <laughs> exactly and as athletes train we also produce a hormone called hepcidin which then again interferes with the absorption so athletes aren't, aren't going to stop training so they can get their iron up so how do we dose appropriately Timing. Um, and sometimes mega dosing is not the answer because that actually increases that hepcidin response as well so it gets really creative in terms of how we supplement and I've, I've actually found a lot of success with um, split dosing and every other day dosing which um, was pretty um, pretty standard in the research a couple years ago but now there's a couple new papers saying yeah well maybe that's not the best way to go but also um, you know tolerance to some of these uh, vitamins and minerals too right because if we're mega dosing iron um, you know one one single dose you know in the morning um, that may really affect um, the GI um, of that athlete and affect and then affect their training even more than their low iron status right a so absolutely <laughs> iron is one of those medications not only do you have to think about interactions and timing but you have to think about tolerability i mean it's not well tolerated people feel yucky when they take iron yeah and, and often become constipated and so there's other things you have to deal with in as a result of of having um a low ferritin and low iron um absolutely so and constant it's a constant, constant blood work yes yeah yes. <laughs> um so we talked about iron and we talked about vitamin d um any other supplements that should be on the radar that people may be coming in and asking about when it comes to uh sports nutrition yeah i mean i have vitamin c on my slides and i think that was a big one you know pre or beginning of covid like angela should i be mega dosing in vitamin c and again gi upset with some of that um you know it's it's not about you know back back loading what you should have been doing all along i always say so you know absolutely having good vitamin c intakes meeting your rdis but um we've kind of seen that you know we may require some athletes may require um a little bit more especially if their their intakes were low if they're tr if they're going um um, traveling. So we may want to supplement um, with vitamin C before travel um, and maybe even probiotics. So there's lots of, you know, um, positive research around um, probiotics, different strains for different things, but um, definitely, you know, a general probiotic can help with that overall um, gut flora um, and optimizing that gut flora if they are going, um, if, if they're traveling or if even if they have sort of just, again, um, you know, a, if they're on antibiotics, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, but that's that's one that I always sort of recommend before um, before travel. And, you know, I'm a bit of a visual learner. And in your slide deck, you actually outline some foods and how the colors actually correlate to the vitamins. And I, I encourage the students to take a peek at that. And because it's a nice thing to, you know, also recommend the food that can boost those sorts of vitamins um, yeah. in your in your day to day intake versus um, you know just getting it through supplementation. So uh, really like those slides. 
So Angela, I mean, there's a lot of information out there. Do you have any really good, quick, you know, resources you would recommend a pharmacist um, go to if they're looking at supplementation for athletes? Um, uh, and I can even, if you could provide it to me, I can even post it on, um, on their uh, learning platform so that they can have the reference. Absolutely. There's actually one paper that just came out um, from Louise Burke, actually, um, that I will, uh, I will reference. It's a great, um, again, sort of a, a guideline in terms of like that decision making tree um, that absolutely healthcare professionals can use. Obviously, first line of defense, I always say the sport dietitian. So if you can recommend um, to a sport dietitian, because again, it becomes very individual um, with with some of these recommendations of, of sport supplements um, or um, ergogenic aids. Um, but the AIS and that is the, the link is there on the on this slide deck as well. But the Australian Institute of Sport um, has done all the sort of constant um, research around um, these supplements consistently. So they're always updating, you know, is beta alanine a good, um, you know, performance enhancer for like most sports. And then they even specify which sports, um, and they, and they move those, um, supplements through a grid in terms of the level of evidence to support those. Um, so it's a great, great tool. Um, it's a great site to, to even reference athletes to, um, if they're looking at, right? What, what is good for me and, and at what points of my training should I be using it? Um, but obviously I highly recommend them to speak with a sport dietitian. Absolutely. <laughs> but if you want to send me that site, I will put that up for them as a, as a, a reference as well. Um, one, sure. one term you used, and I want to make sure that everybody knows what it means is ergogenic aids. What, what exactly are those? Yeah, and I, I, I may be dating myself a bit because I think in the new supplement sort of um, strategy and policy, they actually call them performance enhancing aids. Okay. <laughs> so it, it, I think that's an older term and I'm dating myself maybe, um, but definitely there like anything from beta alanine, caffeine, creatine, branched chain amino acids and amino, amino acids, nitrates, sodium bicarb collagen, which is a big one around right now, um, hydroxymethylbutyrate, glutamine, the list goes on, right? Um, those would all be considered performance enhancing supplements. And then again, where they are placed in that grid of efficacy um, and level of evidence to support their um, their, their performance enhancing abilities. Um, and then again, making sure there's, there's safe supplements. And if we've got safe supplements out there that, um, that we recommend, that sort of fits that kind of big, big category. <laughs> category. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, definitely probably a lecture in itself to go into that. Oh. Um, so this, this has been great, Angela. This is an introduction um, type of lecture uh, for the pharmacy students and how it ties to pharmacy. Um, you know, community pharmacies often get asked lots of questions about um, sport oh. and nutrition and nutritional supplements. And sometimes they don't, people don't even disclose why they're using them. So it's, it's good to ask questions and, and yes. find out, you know, where, where the individual's coming from, because the recommendation might be a little bit different if you're preparing for a marathon or preparing for sport. And certainly, um, I think it's really great that um, pharmacists know that they can refer to um, dietitians, mm -hmm. and there are actually dietitians that specialize in, in sports, such as yourself. So 
Um, it, it's, uh, it's great information. Um, thank you so much for being my guest today on our, our podcast. And um, I really think that this information you've provided is going to be helpful in, in, in everyone's practice. Well, I, I appreciate the time. I love speaking with the students live. Like I said, so this is a new, new world for me too. But uh, I absolutely think there's a place for, um, for even a pharmacist on our mission staff because when we get athletes coming to games with maybe, you know, other um, pharmaceuticals that they're taking and how maybe these supplements or even nutrition interact with some of those, sometimes we don't have those answers. Um, and sometimes we have to make them pretty quick, especially if we've got, you know, an injury situation at, at, at a games level. And we don't have a pharmacist on our mission staff. So just a plug in for you guys. Oh, maybe we, could be maybe we need to get one. <laughs> There you go. I think Students, we do. This is a new career path. And, and boy, would it ever be interesting to, to travel with athletes and help them, I mean, in their, in their athletic uh, endeavors. So excellent, so. excellent idea. Maybe I should consider that, Angela. <laughs> well, it's I'm not talking. saying it may pay very well, but it's very rewarding. <laughs> it's rewarding, exactly. Great talking to you and um, wish you well and uh, look forward to catching up next year again. Yes, thanks so much for having me and good luck in uh, in your studies.